Uh, So let's hear uh, the word of the living God this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 9, picking it up in verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, The sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands, And broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed. And doing 
what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until till it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taborah also, at Massa, and at Kibroth Hattavah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. What do you say to yourself? What's that inner dialogue within your heart sound like? If someone was able to tune in, hop on a boat and float down the stream of your consciousness, what sort of things would they hear? What would they hear you saying to yourself? I think more often than we realize, we are in conversation with ourselves all of the time. There's an inner dialogue going on within our hearts. And what we say to ourselves is really important. It really matters. So, again, what do you say to yourself? The Bible in general and the book of Deuteronomy in particular are very interested in this inner dialogue that takes place within our hearts. You can see references to this in Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 8, here in Deuteronomy 9. You can see it throughout the Psalms. You can see it in passages like Romans chapter 10, verse 6. All of these passages and more address the issue of what we say to ourselves, what we are saying within our hearts. And our passage this morning warns against a certain kind of self-congratulatory speech that we are often tempted to utter within the privacy of our own hearts. And so in light of this, I want us to consider uh, the passage before us today in two sections, two parts. Uh, First, uh, the the problem of self-righteousness, and secondly, the demolition (laughs) of self-righteousness. The problem of self-righteousness in verses 1 through 6 and God's demolition of his people's self-righteousness in verses 7 through 24. It is so easy, isn't it, to feel high and mighty. It is so easy for us to feel that way, especially after some sort of success or victory in our lives. The excitement of winning often causes people to succumb to illusions and delusions of grandeur. And this is exactly what Moses is warning about in verses 1 through 6. He anticipates how God's people will respond to the experience of conquering the Canaanites and taking possession of the promised land. 
And so verses 1 through 3 set the scene for the temptation by describing Israel's inferiority. They're so small. And and yet they will go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than they. With cities fortified up to the heavens. And the Anakim are there. People great and tall. Moses describes Israel militarily as the underdog in this fight. And yet they have a secret weapon. (laughs) According to verse 3. The Lord promises to go before them like a consuming fire to destroy and subdue. Think about some of the wildfires that, that uh, whip across the western states like California and Oregon. They have this secret weapon. Even though they are smaller and inferior, the Lord himself will win the battle by his power using the Israelites as his instrument of victory. Uh, We could stop and just consider this passage and its uh, importance in understanding how we think about what people today call the Canaanite conquest. But I think one thing to recognize before we move on is that in the Lord's account, this 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 is God. This is divine judgment upon a wicked people that has been long coming. You can remember that all the way back in the book of Genesis when the Lord is speaking to Abraham. He says the sins of the people are not yet complete, but that time has come and God is administering judgment immediately through his people. But Coming back to the main idea of this passage, herein lies the temptation that Moses anticipates in verses 4 through 6. When when God uses us to accomplish something, right? When God works in us what he wills through us, it is very, very tempting, is it not, for us to take the credit for ourselves. maybe, Maybe not out loud, but at least in our own inner dialogue, maybe Maybe we don't speak it to others, but we say it to ourselves. How how often do we accomplish things which, at least from our perspective, we we take credit for? At least in our own heart, we congratulate ourselves for accomplishing it. And so in verses 4, 5, 6, and even 7, Moses warns the Israelites, even before the, the battle begins... Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore, third time it's repeated here, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Now, 
if you are to apply this passage to yourself, and there's all kinds of ways to do that, I think you can do so pretty easily. And just think of it in this, these terms. You know, do not say in your heart, after the Lord has blessed your marriage, well, it's because of my emotional intelligence and my investment in this relationship that I have such a long and happy marriage. Do not say in your heart after the Lord has blessed your kids, it's because of my wise and faithful parenting techniques that my children behave and have embraced the faith. Do not say in your heart after people respond positively to the ministry of God's word, well, it's because of my diligent study in the scriptures this week that people are responding positively to God's word. Do not say in your heart, that the Lord is blessing me because I have done this. Now, where are you tempted to say that in your heart? It's, it's really remarkable how, think about this. It really is astounding to think about how little attention is given to the external threat of giants and fortified cities and how much attention is given in this chapter to that little voice speaking in your heart. It's incredible when you set those two things alongside of one another. The people are about to face mighty men and march upon fortified cities. But what is the Lord going on and on about? It is not because of you. It is not because of your righteousness. Do not say this in your hearts. That voice speaking in your heart is the central concern of this passage because the internal temptation to self-righteousness is a far greater foe. I wonder if you believe that. I emphasize this already, but the the repetition in in verses 4 through 7 really does cause this message to stand out. It says the same thing again and again and again. It's it's, it's humbling, not once, not twice, but three times in verses 4, 5, and 7. Moses says that the Israelites are inheriting the promised land and their victory is not due to their righteousness. The repetition highlights, I think, how important this message is For the people of God to come to terms with. But these these verses teach us another important lesson. They they anticipate how the people would be tempted to think uh, after the victory. God destroyed them. So they must be in the wrong. And God has blessed us. So we must be in the right. Yes. Right? The text is very clear in, in, in this sense that God is judging the Canaanites on account of their wickedness. But God is not blessing the Israelites on account of their righteousness. Those two things are not the same. But this is often, I think, how we're tempted to think internally. Right? Since others are really, really bad, that must make us righteous. Or since others are so very terribly wrong, that must mean that I'm right. But that's not how it works. Moses wants God's people to see that the righteousness 
excuse me, the unrighteousness of the world does not establish the righteousness of the people of God. If you see that in the text, it's actually clearer in the Hebrew text than it is, I think, in the English. Their, Their being bad does not make us good. That is the driving point here. Their being wrong does not mean that we are in the right. Don't don't forget the parable that Jesus told to some who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt because that is always what we will inevitably do when we try to establish our own moral superiority. We will always treat others with contempt to establish our own righteousness. And so Jesus tells this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector, the Pharisee standing by himself, and you remember how he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like that tax collector standing over there. And he names others, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers. And he goes on to say, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And I wonder, have you paused at that point in the story that Jesus is telling and asked yourself, are there people that I compare myself with to establish my own righteousness? To establish that I am in the right. right? Who do you put on the list? God, I thank you that I am not like fill in the blank. We go on in the story that Jesus tells and says the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified in right standing rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's not forget God. God destroyed the Canaanites not because of the Israelites' righteousness, but because of the Canaanites' own wickedness. And he gave his people this good land, this promised land, not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, but because it's what God had promised to do. It's what he swore to do. Now, this is, this is a very offensive reality, I think, if we're honest. It, it's hard to accept. Whenever we find ourselves in a good situation, a good marriage, uh, whether we find ourselves you know, financially blessed or whatever it is, it's so easy for us to construct a narrative that explains why we deserve it, and why we're worthy of it. But this passage challenges us to recognize, no, we don't. No victory we enjoy or blessing we possess is due on the basis of our righteousness. None whatsoever. Because another hard reality of this passage is if we see ourselves like the Israelites, which I think we should, we are a stubborn and rebellious people who deserve nothing less than destruction. You know, when it, when it comes down to it, I'll, I'll be honest and say how I've thought in the past. I've looked at the story of the Israelites and in my own heart I've said, man, how, how can they be this dense? How can they be this 
spiritually naive? How can they be this insensitive to the work of the Lord in their lives? They saw these mighty signs and wonders. They walked through the the Red Sea. The Lord provided manna from heaven in the wilderness. And all they did was bicker and complain and not trust in the Lord. And you see what I'm doing. I'm establishing my own moral superiority. In my own heart, I'm, I'm working out how I am better and more deserving than these stupid Israelites. And you see, the reality is I am just like them. I'm just like them. We think we deserve God's blessing. And of course, the voice in our heads will rage against this suggestion. But as I think we'll see in verses 7 through 24... The reality of our rebellion is utterly undeniable. And this is what God does. He demolishes the spirit of self-righteousness in his people by reminding his people just how stiff-necked and rebellious they have been. The reality of of who we are, of, of what we've done, and what we truly deserve apart from the Lord Jesus Christ sobers us up. And the wonderful news is that when we come to really understand this, then the good news of the gospel is better than we could have ever imagined. And this brings us to the next part I want us to consider for a few minutes, the the demolition of self-righteousness. In in verses 7 to 24, I don't know how else to describe this, God takes a wrecking ball to the self-righteousness of his people. That's what he's doing in these verses. Because he he loves them, the Lord completely demolishes any standing for self-congratulatory self-righteousness. And he he refutes their self-righteousness by reminding them of their repeated and recalcitrant rebellion. He tells, did you, did you notice this as we were reading the text? He just tells story after story after story. He just goes through Israel's history since they came out of Egypt. And in the end, the force of his argument is not unlike Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3, where Paul goes after everybody. And at the end, he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Moses says, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Now, when Moses says, even at Horeb, that's not a throwaway statement in verse 8. He is talking about what took place at Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy, Mount Horeb refers to what took place at Mount Sinai. And you remember, this is where God entered into covenant relationship with Israel and gave them his law. But no sooner had the covenant been made that it was broken by this incident with the golden calf, as Moses explains and reminds them in verse 12. Now, this this utterly outrageous act of infidelity is is tantamount. It's the equivalent of a bride committing adultery on her wedding night. 
That's what's being communicated with the words. Even at Horeb, the covenant had just been made and no sooner did Israel get into bed with an idol. The people couldn't even last through the honeymoon before they were pursuing other gods. That's the horror of what stands behind the words, even at Horeb. And friends, if, if, we're, if we're honest with our own hearts, we have to recognize that our hearts are, are no less perverse and no less prone to wonder. I mean, here, here we are this morning, and one of the ways we need to understand the assemblies of God's people, do you notice that language used in Deuteronomy 9 of the assembly at the mountain? Here we are gathered as an assembly of God's people, a worshiping community in the presence of the Lord. And God is in our midst to renew his covenant with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder how long, how long before some of us leave here and turn to worship a manufactured idol? How, how long Will, will, will some of us even make it out of the building before we are giving our affections and our thoughts and our hearts and our desires over to things that are not God that we have chosen to serve? You see, we're not that unlike Israel. I wonder if you feel that. I wonder, I wonder if you have come to terms with really how prone you are to wander away from the Lord. And this passage, it, it, it reminds us that God, God is right to be angry about such infidelity. This is not God losing his cool. It's not God flying off the handle. This is not a capricious God. This is the just anger of God at such an outrageous and uh, audacious act of infidelity. Right? Just like, put it in, in terms of a human analogy, wouldn't we all agree that you would be justly angry if the spouse whom you have loved and been faithful to ran into the arms of another lover right before your eyes? It is an outrage. And we should note that Moses is not preaching. This is another striking feature of the passage. He's actually not talking to the same generation of Israelites that had come out of Egypt. And that's part of what makes this passage so alarming for us. He's, he's not even talking to the, to the people who personally did this. He's not talking to the ones who personally had Aaron construct the golden calf so that they could bow down and worship it at the foot of Mount Sinai. That generation perished in the wilderness. And yet Moses is speaking to their children here as participants and that kind of idolatry, that kind of infidelity, because the Lord understands that the hearts of the second generation are not all that different from the hearts of the first. And this is evidenced by Moses' repeated description of the Israelites as a stubborn or stiff-necked people in verse 6, verse 13, and verse 27. Now, you know, stubbornness, it can be a good quality, can't it? You know, sometimes we see stubbornness in our kids and 
And we think, well, Lord, I hope you sanctify that stubbornness and put it to good use today, someday. Right? But the Lord isn't talking about that kind of stubbornness in this passage. It's talking about a proud, arrogant refusal to listen to and to trust and to obey the Lord. Three times the people in the chapter are called stubborn or stiff-necked. Now, this graphic metaphor pictures the, the hard and unbending neck of an animal who does not want to follow the direction of its master. I, the image that comes to my mind when I, I was young and still living at home with my parents, um, we, uh, we rescued a horse. Uh, his name was Shenango. And um, he, was, he was found on a, on a farm where he wasn't being fed and horses didn't have access to food and water. And so when we went to pick him up, he was, he was malnourished. I mean, you could see bones all over. He was suffering from rain rot. And we, we brought him home and we patiently nursed him back to health. And, and uh, when he was looking good and was more lively, we started to put a saddle on him and get him used to a bit and bridle again. And he would, he would tolerate that. He let you know that he didn't like it. But whenever I started to actually try to flex his neck, that's when he would not have anything to do with me. He was unyielding. And it became very clear that he was a stubborn horse. He did not want to be told what to do. And that's us. That is... That is a picture of the people of God very often, isn't it? We, we don't want to be directed. We don't want to be told what to do. We much prefer serving another God that we can manipulate and control. And this raises the question for all of us, you know, who, who do you worship? What, what do you worship? Whom do you really serve? Not, not confessionally, but I'm talking in terms of functionally who do you serve? You know, when, when the voice of the Lord says, do this, and the voice within your heart says, do that, whose voice wins out in the end? Um, what sort of things do you just easily let go of your money? What do you find yourself doing with your free time? Where does your mind go when you're not distracted in our constantly distracted age? These sort of questions lead us to answer the question, whom do we serve? And some, some of the most alarming words in this passage, I think, are found in verse 12, where the Lord said to Moses, notice this, arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought out from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Did you catch, I tried to emphasize it in reading, did you catch the, the, the pronouns that are used? It's, it's really chilling when you consider what's being said. The Lord calls his people, your people, the people whom you brought out. At the very heart of the covenant relationship is the promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. And it, it seems as though in, in this instance, God is throwing off that language. And that's why Moses comes down off the mountain and smashes the tablets when he sees what the people had done. He breaks them before the people's eyes as a dramatic illustration 
of what they had done. Think about that. The, these tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, the summary of the covenant. I've redeemed you out of Egypt. You have, I've made you my very own. I've called you. I've brought you out. Walk before me in holiness. Words that God etched with his own fingers. Moses picks up these tablets before the people and he throws them to the ground and smashes them into pieces. It is a dramatic illustration that illustrates exactly what adultery, idolatry is. It, is. it is spiritual adultery that breaks covenant with the Lord. And so I, mean, I, I felt the weight of this passage, frankly, all week as I was reflecting upon it. I, I, hope, I hope you're feeling the challenge of this passage today as we are reflecting on it together. But I also hope that you are asking yourself the question, okay, pastors, where's, where's the good news to be found in all of this? Is there any hope for a self-righteous, idolatrous, and stubborn people? I hope you're asking that question. And the answer is that there is good news because we have a mediator. We have a go-between who is able to go up the mountain and speak on our behalf. And we have a great high priest who is better than Aaron. We see this highlighted at least in verses 18 through 21, where Moses talks about how he lay before the Lord 40 days, 40 nights, because of all the sin the people had committed. And, and he, uh, he was afraid because of the anger and hot displeasure of the Lord against the people. But he says, but the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was even angry with Aaron. Think about that. The high priest of Israel. He was ready to destroy. Moses says, I prayed for Aaron also at that time. And then the, he took the golden calf and ground it into fine dust. And I, all I want to point out from this passage with the, the few minutes that we have left before we come to the Lord's table is that the mention of both Moses and Aaron here, I think in their own ways, ought to lead us to consider Jesus a better mediator of a better covenant and a better and greater high priest. We'll look next time at Moses' intercessory prayer for Israel, which we didn't read yet. It comes in the rest of this chapter. But for now, notice that God was ready to destroy the Israelites and to start anew. It reads almost like another flood narrative. Like God is ready to wipe them out and start with a new Noah. He was ready to wipe them out. But, but what does Moses do? He, he, he doesn't say, that sounds like a, a good deal. Let's, let's be done with them. No, instead he intercedes on their behalf. He says, remember, remember how you swore by yourself to bless them. And we're told that the Lord listened to him and relented from the disaster. Now, don't, don't get the misconception in your mind as we think about this in the grand scheme of things. This means we have a, a, an angry, wrathful father who needs to be placated by a, a more merciful, gentle Jesus. After all, who is it that provided us the mediator that we have in the new covenant? But the father himself who gave his one and only son. But another thing we need to recognize as we reflect on this passage is the truth that the disaster for Israel's rebellion 
It was never swept under the rug. It was never overlooked. In fact, we could say it was delayed for a time until the rebellion of God's people fell on God's very own son on the cross. He died, in terms of Deuteronomy, cursed upon a tree. He, He underwent the promised curses of this covenant for Israel's infidelity and unfaithfulness. And that's exactly why Hebrews 9.15 can say, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Did you catch that? This is not simply the promised land, but the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is greater than Moses, but he also surpasses the ministry of Aaron. Now just think about this. Your great high priest, the spiritual leader of God's people in many ways, has constructed an idol and told you to bow down and worship the Lord before it. And what, what kind of hope, what possible grounds for hope is there when the high priest of the people is making idols and telling them to bow down and serve them? The priests of the old covenant were themselves idolatrous sinners in need of forgiveness. And that's why sacrifices had to be offered daily. That's why priests had to act, uh, offer sacrifices on their own behalf before they could offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people, until the promised high priest of God's people arrived on the scene and offered up himself. So listen to Hebrews 7.25, which says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. And so, brothers and sisters, do you see what you freely receive in the good news of Jesus Christ? We have a mediator so that we receive the promised eternal inheritance. As Peter says, it's undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not because, as Paul puts it, because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of divine mercy. And we have a holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, high priest who offered up himself for the unrighteous to cleanse us, to wash us clean, to forgive us, and to bring us near to God. Praise God for his grace to undeserving sinners. Praise God who gives good things to people, not because we deserve it. Actually, despite what we have done, 
and 100% because of what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that message again as we come together to the Lord's table this morning. But first, let's pray. God and our Father, uh, as we reflect upon uh, this word that you have spoken to us today, uh, many of us no doubt feel that it leads us to confess uh, self-righteousness, idolatry, and our own stubbornness to listen to you and be humble before you. Uh, We acknowledge and confess our continued struggle in these areas of our lives, and we pray that you would, in your grace, wash us clean through the blood of Jesus Christ afresh, and by your Holy Spirit renew us so that we, uh, Lord, cling more closely uh, to you and and walk in your ways. This morning we rejoice in the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ we have a mediator and we have a perfect high priest who is able to bring us near to you. Thank you for the gift of grace that you have given to the unrighteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.